Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you for tuning in to the show where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. Thanks so much for being part of the show. Thanks for listening. Thank you to those who write in. And uh, I think the place to start today's show is exactly there with uh, one or two of the letters I've recently received. Um, Here is one that just came in from Rebecca. Uh, Her last name is provided. I will not uh, disclose that. Uh, Dear Rabbi Lappin, I enjoy your podcast, but your discussion of Jill Dillard's blog post and similar comments you frequently make on your podcast suggest that you don't actually have a solid grasp on the way things really work when it comes to modern marriage. Okay, Uh, an interesting start, would you not agree? I certainly found it very interesting, because any time you put the word modern in front of certain things that don't change... uh, you know, modern earthquakes are destruct. No, you don't need modern. Earthquakes are earthquakes. Um, money, you know, modern money. No, our relationship to money is as true and as valid and as predictable today as it was a thousand years ago. There are, you know, Bitcoin and you have uh, PayPal and electronic transfers. Of course, you have all those things. But uh, in general... Okay, so she says, says, Rebecca, you don't actually have a solid grasp on the way things really work when it comes to modern marriage. For you to say that there are only two paths, i.e. pursuing progressive feminist goals or traditional marriage roles, is ridiculous. This false dichotomy ignores the majority of healthy marriages among people who don't adhere to evangelical or perhaps orthodox precepts governing marriage. A wife obviously has to do things she doesn't want to do, including having sex, in order to keep her husband happy. And the inverse is true as well. However, existing solely to please your husband and making yourself available on demand for the husband at his will, like some kind of sexy maid or sex doll, is not a dignified existence and completely ignores the woman's needs and desires. In a healthy marriage, men and women compromise to please the other, but neither should be expected to serve the other on demand whenever demanded. That role is more fitting for an employee, not a wife or husband. In previous podcasts, you decried the saying, happy wife, happy life, but you apparently wholeheartedly support the inverse, happy husband, happy life. The premise of your show was that progressives hate Dillard's ideas because they are antiquated. Have you considered that maybe they hate them because they're wrong? I am far from a progressive. I am a pro-life conservative who shares your disgust with modern culture, and in most ways, I think the sexual morals of the 50s are superior to today's, quote, morality, which is entirely lacking. However, I oppose what Jill Dillard writes specifically in regards to serving a husband's sexual needs on demand because it's wrong, not because it's from the past. Some ideas from the past are actually wrong, like eugenics. 
You likewise create a false dichotomy whenever you discuss women and careers, i.e. that women must choose a career or a family. From my own experience, I know that this is a falsehood. I work full-time as an attorney, but have chosen a position that allows me to work entirely from home. I never miss an event at my children's school, and I spend every morning before school and every afternoon and evening with them. I cook all of our meals from scratch, and I share in the housework duties with my husband. A lot of other women I know achieve a similar healthy balance between work and home by working flex schedules or part-time. My family is and always will be my first priority. The truth is, most women who put career first do so simply because they cannot find a husband. A career woman is largely a fiction created by women who cannot find a husband and by individuals like yourself who want to disparage all modern marriages and modern women by painting with extremely broad strokes. And um, I think she gets increasingly angry during the email because she didn't conclude sincerely or uh, you know anything else. She just said, Rebecca. Uh, okay, uh, okay, what Rebecca is doing is telling me what I said, not correct, but she's saying what she thinks I said, but she's not saying, I think you said this, she's stating this is what you said, and then she proceeds to demolish exactly whatever it was that she believes I said. Uh, this is uh, a very standard practice in debate and argument and rhetoric. Uh, I don't know that she's doing it deliberately. She may very well believe exactly what she says I say. She may think that's really what I did say. However, that's simply not true. Um, I think one only has to listen to uh, a few podcasts, read a few thought tools that come out every week from our website, read a few Ask the Rabbi columns that come out every week, and I think you'll quickly see that this isn't correct. However, let me just go through it and uh, at least take a few points to refute. Uh, Rebecca says, I enjoy your podcast, which I appreciate, but your discussion of Jill Dillard's blog post and similar comments you frequently make on your podcast suggest that you don't actually have a solid grasp on the way things really work when it comes to modern marriage. Well, uh, I think I probably do have a pretty good idea of how things work in modern marriage. I don't think that when you put the word modern in front of marriage that you necessarily are talking about the same marriage that I speak about. And I think the rest of your letter uh, seems to confirm that uh, you, by definition, call something modern marriage, and then by definition, that becomes desirable. And I don't think that that is true. Um, my response to you is absolutely not ad hominem, Rebecca. It's not uh, at you, but it's at the points your letter raises. Uh, you go on to say that um, for you to say that there are only two paths, pursuing progressive feminist goals or traditional marriage roles, is ridiculous. Well, uh, I may be wrong. You may think I'm wrong on certain things. Uh, to say that I'm ridiculous or the things I say is ridiculous, I take issue on that just a little bit because I welcome constructive criticism. But calling what somebody says ridiculous. Well, that's just abuse. Nonetheless, I'm a big boy, and um, I wipe the tears away from my cheeks and move on. So uh, you're saying that it's ridiculous for me to say there are only two ways, progressive feminist goals or traditional marriage. And I never ever said roles, by the way. 
traditional marriage, you see, as soon as you say roles, you are already signifying that uh, you are somewhat infected with contemporary feminist doctrine, and I'll explain why that is. But you go on to say, this false dichotomy ignores the majority of healthy marriages among people who don't adhere to evangelical or perhaps orthodox precepts governing marriage. I've never spoken about evangelical or orthodox precepts. I talk about marriage itself. And um, when you say this false dichotomy ignores the majority of healthy marriages, who are you to determine what marriages are healthy and what aren't? Nobody knows what's going on in anyone else's marriage. You certainly don't, and I certainly don't. And so as soon as you put in things like that, I have a sense that that you are in the grips of an agenda, and uh, you are hoping to be able to cast me in the role of the villain of the story, one which I must reject because, as everybody who listens to the show knows, my paths are the paths of righteousness and my ways are the ways of peace. We all know that I never inadvertently offend anybody at all. And so um, uh, she goes on to say, a wife obviously has to do things she doesn't want to do, including having sex in order to keep her husband, and the inverse is true as well. Um, Gosh, um, am I reading too much into this? But I certainly... um, a wife obviously has to do things she doesn't want to do, including having sex, in order to keep her husband happy. You can't possibly mean what you just wrote there, Rebecca. I've, I just can't believe that. Uh, a wife obviously has to do things she doesn't want to do, including having sex, in order to keep her husband happy. And the inverse is true as well. And meaning what? It, this is, is just not true. It's not true, and it's certainly nothing that I said on the show to which you allude. However, existing solely to please your husband and making yourself available on demand for the husband at his will like some kind of sexy maid or sex doll is not a dignified existence. And um, let's just imagine you had to choose between dignity and a happy marriage. What would you pick? I'll tell you what I pick, and I'll tell you that uh, my dignity is compromised every single day. Uh, my dignity is compromised when I carry the garbage out. And, you know, sometimes we have help doing that. Other times I do it. Uh, I do it because I know that my wife likes working in a clean kitchen. And when the garbage container is full, she likes it to go. She doesn't even have to ask me because I enjoy doing it. Um, this is not a, she says, but... Uh, to be available on demand for the husband like some kind of sexy maid or sex doll, not a dignified existence. Okay, fine. And completely ignores the women's needs and desires. I very expressly say, and I've written in a number of uh, different thought tool articles and in Ask the Rabbis, I've, I've said many times that obviously if uh, there are issues, medical issues or psychological issues, or there's something going on, obviously in a situation like that, uh, for the husband to demand his conjugal rights um, is, is, is brutish and thuggish and, and obviously not what we're talking about at all. What I'm talking about is, and I, again, I've, I've, I've said this on the show and I've, I've written it very clearly, and, and Rebecca, you really are ignoring my position and you're constructing a straw man here that 
it looks as if you've been waiting for a long time to take down. But what I said is that today's culture tends to glorify the woman or the wife uh, to the extent of actually diminishing her role as a marriage partner in every sense of the word and emphasizing her lonely and distinctive existence and superiority. Uh, the, uh, the idea that uh, sex is part of what a wife should be happy to bring into a husband's life uh, is today in, in general culture demeaned. And so I said there needs to be a, a restoration of a, a more normal and, and healthier marital life where a woman delights in her femininity takes joy in seeing what she brings to her husband by the surrender of herself to him and finds genuine ecstasy in rebuilding his masculinity, his manhood, by rebuilding his ego uh, after whatever vicissitudes he's had to counter during his workday. Uh, that is 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 intrinsic to the meaning of marriage. Maybe not modern marriage as you term it, Rebecca, but it is intrinsic to marriage. And uh, God bless those wonderful wives who thrill to that role. And let's recognize the good fortune of those happy husbands whose wives are indeed in that mode. But for you to denigrate such women as they're some kind of sexy maids or sex dolls and they aren't, they lose their dignity. Um, sorry, I don't agree with you. Uh, the suggestion that this completely ignores women's needs and desires, I don't believe that. I, I, I just don't accept that. And, um, and certainly the, uh, the, the, the role, uh, let me not use that word, that was your word, but, uh, but one of the most basic needs and desires of a woman is to be desired by her man and to be admired and loved and appreciated and adored by her man. There is no way for that to be achieved in the complete absence of a physical relationship. And a physical relationship that is uh, uh, mutual as opposed to the cold-hearted woman who either makes her man beg or, or reach uh, levels of desperation as she scores some kind of sordid psychological victory in her own twisted mind. Uh, these, these things happen. Look, I talk to a lot of women and I talk to a lot of men. Uh, I'm blessed. I have the opportunity to lecture to live audiences around the country in churches and in other in, in other venues. And, and I welcome interaction with people afterwards. Sometimes I'm signing books. Sometimes I'm just chatting. I hear a lot. Um, it's obviously anecdotal. I, I, I am not polling 10,000 men or 10,000 women. But, uh, you know, I guess I am saying that... Um, when you define a modern marriage, 
I, I reject that. I'm talking about idealized marriage. And it has nothing to do with past, present, or future. Uh, it's idealized marriage. You know, do I have it? Of course not. Does anybody, I don't think anybody has an idealized marriage. But if we at least keep our eye on what the ideal is, then we are able to correctly navigate the countless crossroads that crop up in a married couple's life every single week. Uh, she goes on to say, uh, in a healthy marriage, men and women compromise to please the other, but neither should be expected to serve the other on demand whenever demanded. Look, in, in a, the, the truth is, and I just I disagree with you, in a healthy marriage, nothing is ever demanded. I don't think women demand from husbands. I don't think husbands demand from wives. That's not how it's done. Uh, it's given. Much is given. Uh, serving another becomes a happy-making role. And and really, I mean, I don't think there's any husband in a healthy marriage who, who doesn't realize the joy he brings to himself by making his wife happy. And that's exactly why I did do a show about uh, a happy wife, happy life. And I, have to, I had to draw the line. I had to show where those uh, limits actually lie. But the principle of a husband and wife wanting to please one another is what a marriage works like. Now, you talk about a modern marriage, maybe in a modern, and I'm, I'm being snide here, but maybe in your version of a modern marriage, husbands and wives do demand things from one another. But uh, that's not idealized, and um, it's certainly not a marriage I'd be very happy in if I was demanding things from Susan or she was demanding things from me. And so it goes for, for anybody else who is constructively always working on their marriage, trying to improve it. That role is more fitting for an employee. You know what? Uh, I wouldn't want to work for you. If you think that demanding whenever you like, whatever you like is okay, it's more fitting for an employee, which is what you've just said. Um, I really wouldn't want to work for you. Um, your, the premise of your show was that progressives hate Dillard's ideas because they are antiquated. No, it's not because they're antiquated. I never said that. They hate the basic idea. And the title of the show said it all. Uh, they hate the idea of a woman making herself beautiful and appealing for her husband. Not for the public, not out there, not the woman who wears hair curl, her hair, hair rollers and, uh, and sweat suits at home and then dresses up in an attractive outfit with heels when she goes out with, uh, with her girlfriends. No, that, that would be very far from what an idealized marriage would look like. And so, no, they, they don't hate Dillard's ideas because they're antiquated. I never said that, Rebecca. You really are uh, creating several straw men in your piece. Um, have you considered that maybe they hate them because they're wrong? Um, yeah, but that's not the answer. That's not why they hate them. Of course, they think they're wrong. Uh, of course, progressives think the idea of a wife being devoted to uh, making sure her husband is constantly infatuated with her by the way she dresses and smells and looks. I mean, yeah, they think that's wrong. Obviously, they do. Um, so when you sort of pose that as this hugely provocative question, no, that's exactly why they hate it. It's not, it's not because they're and the ideas are antiquated, because they think they're wrong. They think that's not what a marriage is. I am far from a progressive. I'm a pro-life conservative. I'm happy to hear that. God bless you. Um, 
Would you know, I have your, I oppose what Jill Dillard writes specifically in regards to serving a husband's sexual needs on demand. Again, see, you 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 either didn't hear or you are so emotionally upset by this whole subject uh, that that you put in this demand theme, which crops up again and again and again throughout your your letter to me. Um, I oppose, this is you, I oppose what Jill Dillard writes specifically about serving a husband's sexual needs on demand. I never, ever endorsed a husband demanding. Let me tell you something. Once a husband demands, there's a whole lot wrong with that marriage. It's in very bad shape. I have counseled dozens. I'm not going to say hundreds, but I've counseled dozens of marriages where one of the strongest and earliest warning signs was the husband demanding physical intimacy. Uh, so um, she says, this is completely wrong. Yeah, I also agree demanding is, is wrong, no question about it. But I never, ever said that. She said, you likewise create a false dichotomy whenever you discuss women and careers. Gee, that's, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I.e. that women must choose a career or a family. From my own experience, I know that this is a falsehood. I work full-time as an attorney, but have chosen a position that allows me to work entirely from home. Okay, I am going to go out on a limb here, Rebecca. And I am going to state, beyond a shadow of a doubt, based on my experience, both in life in counseling, and in reading the unspoken messages in letters that people write to me, I'm going to state beyond a shadow of a doubt, Rebecca, that you are fortunate enough to be married to a man who makes a very good living. I'm going to go further than that, and I'm going to say you actually do not even need to work. I guarantee this. I'll read, I'll read your sentence again, and uh, perhaps other listeners will pick up on this as well. From my own experience, I know this is a falsehood, namely that a woman must choose a career or a family, which again, I've never said. But anyway, I work full-time as an attorney, but have chosen a position that allows me to work entirely from home. I never miss an event at my children's school, and I spend every morning before school and every afternoon and evening with them. Look, um, maybe you believe that you work full-time as an attorney. Maybe you do and you're not lying, you're saying what you actually believe. But I happen to know a little about how business works, and I happen to know just a little about how you earn a living as an attorney. Let me tell you something. If you are working at home, and you never miss an event at your children's school, and you're able to spend every morning before school and after school with the children, and you cook all your meals from scratch, God bless you for that, um, you're not working full-time as an attorney, guaranteed. I'm sorry, but it's a hobby. You're doing it because you need that um, experience and that activity uh, to feel dignified, to use one of your own words. I'm do I don't mean to upset you, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm not trying to, and I hope I'm not, but I am, I am reading very clearly into something you all but told me in your letter. You work full-time as an attorney, you don't. You dabble as an attorney. If you're working from home and you never miss, I'm sorry, that's not the life of an attorney. That's just not how it works. I'm sorry, it ain't. 
and you know unless you're doing immigration or uh, attorney work which every now and then you have a client and you submit some papers that that may be but the idea that that's called working full-time you don't begin to know what working full-time means Rebecca you don't have a clue and uh, and I as I say I guarantee you are lucky enough to be married to a husband who is a very good provider um, she says I cook all of our meals from scratch which I think is fantastic and then she says and share in the housework duties with my husband now that is um Sorry, I, I don't go for that. Again, I understand the realities. All right, I understand that circumstances sometimes being what they are, but I don't really see why your husband needs to be doing any of the housework duties other than you seem to have a need to share the household duties with your husband, which is how you put it. I don't think your husband deserves to have to do any of them. I think you should take care of it. And since you work full-time as an attorney, you're making lots of money, hire a housekeeper to do the housework. But stop needing to subjugate your husband. Stop needing to find your sense of self-esteem by turning him into a housewife. Stop it. She goes on, a lot of other women I know achieve a similar healthy balance between work and a home. Really? Who deems this healthy? You? You can't just put it. In other words, as an attorney, you should know better. Your writing should be more objective. But you cannot say, uh, a lot of other women I know achieve a similar healthy balance between work and home. Says who? Who says? Okay. So um, it's all right. Enough said on that. My family isn't always will be my first priority. That is absolutely fantastic. And uh, in a certain way, and I, I want you to understand what I'm saying here, in a certain way, that is not the luxury that can be indulged in by your hardworking husband. Now, obviously, we all, you know, we all say and we all think and we all believe, right, my family, uh, my, my, my faith comes first, my family comes first, uh, my work takes second place to all of that. We understand that. The reality, however, is that your husband, being the good provider that he is, puts his work pretty much as his priority, certainly in the working hours of the day, because he is not working at home. He leaves every morning and comes home every night. That's just my take from your letter. I'm pretty sure that that is the truth. And so for you to be able to say my family isn't always be, be my first priority, that's fantastic. And that's what, exactly the attitude I would like my wife to take. The whole reason that I am able to make work my priority is because I have a wife who makes family hers. And so between us, we're covering everything. But then she doesn't try and make me share the housework with her. And I don't try and make her share with me primary fiscal responsibility. The truth is, continues Rebecca, most women who put career first do so simply because they can't find a husband. Um, wow, I, I don't, that's very strong, and I'm, 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 I, I'm, I don't agree with that. A career woman is largely a fiction created by women who can't find a husband. Okay, you're sounding just a little bit as if you're crowing. You're patting yourself on the back because you did find a husband. And my guess is a pretty good husband at that. And then she goes on to say, and 
the career woman is a fiction created by individuals like yourself, meaning me, who want to disparage all modern marriages and modern women. You know what? As soon as you put the word modern in front of women, I don't want to marry her. As soon as you put the word modern in front of marriage, I don't want to I don't want to propose that or suggest that, encourage that, or for that matter, live in that uh, by painting with extremely broad strokes. All right, I'm not sure what that means. Anyways, um, sorry, Rebecca, I felt a need to fairly decisively uh, obliterate some of the false uh, straw men you erected in order to uh, knock them down with uh, <laughs> with such violence so i did i did need to correct that i i'm going to try and respond to your uh, letter in writing as well but uh for now at any rate i just uh, i did want to give some kind of response to that so i hope that that is uh, is helpful to you um okay well that is uh that is longer than uh, I wanted to go, but let me first of all remind you of the website. Uh, there is a special right now, and of course I'm uh, recording the show in the middle of June of uh, 2019. There is a special right now at rabbidaniellappin.com on a fantastic audio product called Prosperity Power Connect for Success. And uh, again, what uh, what this helps us understand, taking things to an extreme, obviously, if uh, if you were the last person in the country or on earth, let's imagine some kind of uh, situation that took away everyone else except you. Are you the richest person on earth because you now own every single uh, Bentley and Rolls Royce on the road. You uh, you own all the real estate. You own everything. Are you the wealthiest, richest, most successful human being who's ever existed? And the answer is no, because in uh, the way I put it in the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Financial Principle Number One Hundred and Seventeen, uh, other people are your money. Without other people in the world, you will find yourself reduced to a pathetic existence, almost that of a subsistence farmer, because, uh, you know, you quickly realize there are no movies, there's no television, because there's no other people to operate them, um, there's no stores, uh, there's no transport when there's, when there's no electricity to pump uh, gasoline, uh, you, you have to light your um, home by candles when the sun goes down, and um, and what are you going to eat? There are restaurants. There's nothing else out there. You basically have to plant stuff and hope that it that it grows and you can harvest it before you starve to death. That is your existence as the as the last person on earth. And so it's important, I think, to to recognize that the other extreme is connected with other people. Having no connection to other people, you will starve. There is no question about it. Uh, one of the biggest problems with the so-called homeless population is disconnection from family and friends. And uh, the more connected you are, once you know how to connect in an authentic way, not in a way that commoditizes your relationships, um, you are then able to benefit from the, well, basically God's plan for human economic interaction. And so uh, you want to look out for this product on my website. It's called Prosperity Power Connect for Success. 
and uh, you can download that at uh, a ridiculously low price right now. So head over to rabbidaniellappin.com. That's right, rabbidaniellappin.com, or you need a rabbi.com, and uh, go ahead and uh, download Prosperity Power Connect for Success. Um, I got a letter also from Akila. Akila is um, writing about um, something I did on one of the shows recently and having to do with accident-prone children. Dear Rabbi Lappin, in your most recent podcast, you mentioned that accident-prone children are subconsciously punishing themselves for something that their parents failed to properly address. If that's the case, are athletes only the product of superb parenting and discipline? That's great news for every nerd who dreams of becoming great at sports. I was an accident-prone child who had plenty of discipline from my parents. Some of my accidents may have been due to vision issues. I currently wear prescription glasses. Some of my accidents were probably due to getting used to a growing body. Some accidents occurred because an 8-year-old child does not yet have the common sense of a 38-year-old. I was not punishing myself for some wrong that I may have committed. I just didn't have the hand-and-eye coordination that other kids my age possessed. Uh, first of all, Akila, I didn't and never would say every single incident of a an accident prone child is that i just wouldn't i wouldn't say that i never did say that um secondly for you to say uh, i was not punishing myself for some wrong that i may have committed um you wouldn't know right the whole this is all very subconscious so you wouldn't know i wouldn't know you may well be an exception i'm not saying it's absolutely every accident prone child but uh, a very significant number of cases of children who are accident prone um, become that way out of a subconscious need to um, to be punished, to be hurt for things they believe, rightly or wrongly, by the way, that they have done wrong. Then Akila goes on and says, while I have your attention, I would also like to request that you return the length of the podcast to roughly 60 minutes. I really appreciate your teaching, but two hours feels unnecessary. Or if you decide to stay with a longer format, maybe you could have more defined breaks between topics, a way to give our brains to take a mental breath before continuing. Keep up the good work. Sincerely, Akila. Uh, thanks very much indeed. And uh, I have, I've been alternating a little bit between the uh, 60 minutes and, and two hours, but in general yeah i i will i will go back um the the point is on a podcast you can stop at any point you want to but you make an excellent point which is that there really ought to be um definitive breaks uh, that would enable people to make a comfortable stop at that point um, I get it, and I thank you for your letter. By the way, I also thank Rebecca. I may have neglected to express my appreciation to Rebecca for writing. That did take an investment of time. Uh, she also said she listens regularly, and so I appreciate that as well. I really do, and um, and uh, and thank you. So, um, how do you feel about a culture? And there is a place. There are places like this in the world. A culture where young people are absolutely forced to attend religious indoctrination schools. Isn't that terrible? Uh, these are, are madrasas that rigidly enforce religiously dogmatic doctrines. And young people are subjected to this. And, people, and young people are forced. It's not as if they have a choice, you know, because jobs are cruelly and maliciously withheld from those who chose to live independently and not attend these schools of religious indoctrination. Isn't it terrible that there are places like this in the world where this happens? 
Um, and so these poor young people have to waste four years or five years or longer, waste those years of their lives being compulsorily forced to think in conformity with their imams and their clerics and their priests. It's really horrible and shocking that this happens. And, uh, and of course, those of you who know me uh, saw immediately through my little uh, deception there, suggesting that I was criticizing a Muslim environment. No, of course not. I'm talking about the American system of academic credentialism. Credentialism. What is credentialism? It is a um, an insistence that formal educational qualifications are absolutely necessary to do anything at all. And um, occupations which used to require a high school diploma, such as construction supervisors, loan officers, insurance clerks, executive assistants, these are now increasingly uh, requiring a bachelor's degrees. Uh, jobs that used to require a bachelor's degree, such as uh, uh, tutoring, teaching, uh, so on and so forth, well, these all now require a master's degree. And the jobs that used to demand a master's degree, such as scientific researcher positions, uh, seasonal uh, um, adjunct lecturing jobs, and so on, well, they now require a PhD. See, this is credential creep. That's what this means. Uh devaluing last year's credential in favor of the new higher level credential. Um, some jobs that used to require a PhD, such as university professor, now require postdoctoral fellowship appointments. It keeps on creeping onwards. And so credentialism is a, a, a tendency to rely on formal qualifications or academic certifications to decide whether someone is permitted or capable of undertaking a task, speak as an expert, quote, or work in a certain field. Um, in other words, it is an excessive reliance on credentials, especially academic degrees, uh, when determining whether somebody can be hired or promoted, etc., etc. This is really bad. We have all come to trust credentials more than the person and much more than our own instincts. And so, and I've, I've criticized this before, uh, we all fall victim to uh, articles or uh, uh, television or radio where they say, experts say, studies have revealed uh, no, we've got to recover some confidence in our own judgment. We have to. And we've got to be able to recognize some of the craziness that comes out of credentialed people. But you've, you've got to develop some confidence, right? some confidence for that to be able to happen. You've got to feel some confidence in ourselves. So um, what, is, uh, what, what has brought on this um, 
disturbance in my spirit on the subject of experts and credentials. Well, um, I, I've mentioned in, in the past, uh, there are four over 400,000 students in the New York uh, State University system. Right? They've got um, four college um, centers, Albany, Binghamton, Buffalo, and Stony Brook. Stony Brook's on, on Long Island. And 400,000 people, and that's not counting all the other universities and colleges in New York State. This is just the State University of New York, 400,000 people, many of whom are there graduating or who will eventually graduate in degrees in what I call middle period Etruscan pottery. In other words, a completely useless degree. But something much more important is happening, my friends, and that is they are becoming embittered leftists because the universities are really nothing other than the high temples and the madrasas for a religion. Look, let us clarify this. If, if there's one thing I want to emphasize, it's this, that in the West today, and this is true in Europe, it's true in America, secular fundamentalism is a religion. It's a militant faith, a community of belief and shared values of dogmas and heresies and sacraments and fanatics and saints and devils and horns and halos. That's what we're talking about here. We really have to recognize that. That is what the left has now become. And uh, universities are nothing other than the madrasas of this religion in, that young people are forced to attend because if you don't get credential, they'll withhold a job from you. And so they force you to go there. 400,000 young people at the State University of New York busy being indoctrinated into the beliefs of the religion of secular fundamentalism. That is very worrying. That's only in one university system in one state. But if you worry about the future, worry about a religious system that is forced down the throats of young Americans people without enough life experience and certainly without enough confidence to be able to face down these religious fanatics of the left and to little by little they become indoctrinated i must tell you think about this i, I you know tell me if you think i'm wrong but i believe that there are things that are said by professors of universities in the United States of America today, there are things that professors say which had a 10th grade student in a high school said 30 years ago, they would have been sent home. Their parents would have been told that they need help. So one of the, uh, one of the schools that I just mentioned, Stony Brook, is a one of the system one of the the schools of State University of New York, and uh, it's on Long Island. I mention all that only because I wanted to tell you uh, about a woman who teaches in that school. 
Uh, her name's Stephanie Calton. She's a professor at Stony Brook. And um, in her whole life, she's never done anything other than work in politics and academia. I say that because one of the great reasons you should make sure your children get jobs early in life is because working in a business is really one of the best educations in how the world really works. One of the best things you can do. And I find it deeply disturbing that so many of those who govern us, uh, so many of those who would govern us even more, I'm thinking of uh, Biden running for the Democratic nomination for president, so many of them have never ever held down a job, never have run a business, never had the real-world education that having to make a payroll every week or every month, having to uh, operate a budget, having to satisfy customers, having to maintain a relationship with vendors based on cooperation, not power, based on reflection and friendship, not on rule and force and so many of those who govern us have never been outside of academia. Think of President Obama, never had a job in his life, never been outside politics or academia. Huge problem. Well, uh, Stephanie, Professor Stephanie at uh, Stony Brook, she's got an interesting idea. She came up with something called modern monetary theory. Uh, why don't I just let her tell you uh, what it means right because modern monetary theory mmt as it's called in universities and academic institutions uh, why don't i let her tell you what mmt means modern monetary theory uh, as soon as i say modern monetary theory many of us say oh oh, oh uh, this is this is too technical this is academic i'm just a plain ordinary person i wouldn't know what that means well why don't we let her explain it in her own words um, um, Stephanie, Professor Stephanie says, the government does not ever have to worry about how much it borrows to pay for spending programs. It should go ahead and spend whatever it needs and borrow whatever it, it takes. She says, unlike a household or a business, the government can never run out of money. I'm reading you her own words. I know at this point you are looking for a chair to sit down in. You're wiping your brow. You're looking for a glass of water to drink. I get that, but keep listening. This is Professor Stephanie Kelton. Unlike a household or a business, the government can never run out of money. The government can always print more money to pay for anything at once. <laughs> that is Professor Stephanie Kelton teaching your children at State University of New York. Come on, really? No understanding at all? If that's the case, Professor Stephanie, why is the government doing anything but printing money? If there's anything they should be doing, it's keeping those presses rolling and making sure that we all get some of it, right? Now, come on. Anybody who has ever held a job, anyone who's ever run a business, anybody who's ever lived in the real world and in the private sector knows that there is a snag there, that somehow that is not something that can just continue. 
That's simply not how the world works at all. And yet, not only does Professor Stephanie get accolades, but she gets offers of consulting gigs for places like uh, uh, Bernie's uh, campaign. That's right. Would you believe it? Absolutely. Bernie Sanders um, hired a... Oh, she she worked... Yeah, Bernie Sanders' campaign advised... uh, She advised Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016. She had some wonderful gigs. Uh, She was an advisory to the Senate Budget Committee because everybody loved what she was saying. And the great thing is that for politicians, it lets them off the hook. Um, We have an economist on staff, or we had a consultant economist come in, and uh, she said we can go ahead and spend any programs we like because the government can never run out of money. Whoa, okay. Uh, And in all her uh, writings that I've had a chance to look at, I have yet to see a single cautionary note, a single thing that says, wait a moment, printing money is a huge problem. It's not something you can just go ahead and do. So um, there it is, folks. Um, The university system at work uh, inculcating your children and mine with ideas that are not true, but that they are beliefs, part of the 21st century of secular fundamentalism. Uh, these are um, are doctrines, and you argue against them at your own risk, because vehement and fierce and unreformed faiths are always violent towards those they perceive as heretics. That should be enough of a warning for anybody. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com, you got it already, I don't want to take up a lot of time of the show uh, any more than absolutely necessary, but it's you need a rabbi.com and you will be able to look up an audio program you can download. It's two hours of instruction called Prosperity Power Connect for Success. And uh, it's filled with very effective practical strategies for building relationships with people that enable you to transform those relationships into a growth in revenue and ultimately the huge blessing of financial abundance. Prosperity Power, connect for success. And uh, that is, of course, at youneedarabbi.com. Well, you know, uh, something we all need to recognize in ourselves um, is the internal tussle we deal with many times each day uh, between our heart and our head. And to a large extent, the success or failure that we experience depends on whether we make the important decisions with the head or with the heart. Again, from a biblical perspective, my own background the verse that I was always taught uh, from from childhood onwards, uh, Numbers chapter 15, verse 39, and you shall not go astray after your heart or after your eyes. 
and uh, I was taught, I mean, my dad explained to me as, as a young boy I was, uh, that the heart and the eyes are connected. And what he meant by that was that if you think about the heart representing emotion as opposed to the head, don't follow your heart, follow your head. Um, at the same time, the role of the eyes is, well, it's very simple. If you know any man, and I know any number of men, who've made absolutely disastrous decisions about a woman, were they using their hearts or their heads? Were they using their eyes or their ears? <laughs> uh, I think you'll agree it's eyes. Tell me, um, home shopping network on radio or television? Yeah. When you're going to be buying stuff you don't need, it's going to be an emotional purchase. Engage it by showing people with their eyes. That's right. Because with the head, you are less likely to buy stuff you don't need. And then you are less likely to need to rent one of those little storage units in a facility they build under high-tension electric wires because nobody else wants to do anything else there. And in these facilities, you can rent for a month a, a sort of a container that looks like a solitary confinement prison cell into which you can put all the stuff you bought because you saw it and you emotionally decided you wanted it. And that's where it goes. And so uh, the eyes are strongly connected to the emotional center of the human being, whereas the ears are much more closely connected to the head center of the human being. And the important thing is not to have no emotion, obviously, and um, the important thing is, yeah, of course you've got to have emotion, you've got to feel emotion, you've got to show, you've got to express, especially if you are in a, a marriage relationship, of course you've got to show, you've got, you have children, of course they want to see an emotional connection, they need it, you need it, but important decisions in life have to be made with the head, not the heart. You know, if, if there's one thing to take away from this show today, that would probably be it important decisions in life, please make sure you make them with your head, not with your heart. Let me give you a little more guidance in that direction. And uh, be aware then that numbers speak to the head, stories speak to the heart. Um, I point out at uh, business conferences, and, and I'm doing uh, a number of speeches for a business conference in Central Africa uh, next week, but uh, I always explain that um, corporate annual reports, you know, you always, before you invest in a company, you always want to read a, a few years worth of annual reports. And if you look at the annual reports and they're heavy on the story and light on the numbers, run for your life. When they're pages and pages and pages and pages talking about what they're doing and how they're doing it and all their wonderful people and the new facility they're in and uh, and why the uh, work they're doing is so important, story after story after story, run for your life! But if, on the other hand, the annual report is, is very heavy on numbers, um, on financial statements, on projections with reasonable suppositions, and uh, and then you say, okay, that's good. The Or it could be good at any rate. At least you have a chance of making up your mind responsibly. But uh, following story is following the heart. Following numbers is following the head. And uh, we take numbers very seriously indeed. 
Um, I must tell you something, and, and again, you know, for those of you who listen but have uh, little interest in the Bible, I'm only going to take a couple of moments on this, so uh, don't worry. But uh, for actually, even for you, it might be interesting as well. Here it is. As early as chapter 5 in Genesis, uh, we have a, uh, a sequence that begins this way. Adam lived 130 years, and he begat a son in his own likeness. He called his name Seth. And the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years, and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. But wait a sec, you can do the arithmetic, right? I told you that he lived 130 years, then gave birth to Seth, and he lived 800 years after that. I think that total is 930. And there's a general principle that there is no ink wasted in the Torah, right? Uh, you've heard that before. No unnecessary words, no unnecessary letters even. And so why a whole section here? Anyway, let's continue. Now, Seth lived 105 years, and he begat Enosh. And Sheth lived after he begat Enosh 807 years. And the days of Seth were 912 years. But you knew that 105 and 807 is 912. And Enosh lived 90 years, and he begat Canaan. And after begetting Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years, and he had... And that all the days of Enosh were 905 years, but you knew that. And so it goes all the way onwards until we finally come to the famous Methuselah, lived 187 years, and he gave birth to Lemech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lemeth 782 years. And, be, and all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And Lemech lived 182 years, had a son, called his name Noah. And often begetting Noah, he lived for 595 years. And the days of Lemech were 777. But you knew that you can do the arithmetic. Even more to the point, later on, in chapter 11, where generations, genealogies are given again, we read these are the generations of Shem. Shem was a hundred years old. He begat Arpachshad two years after the flood. Shem lived after he begat Arpachshad 500 years, and he had sons and daughters. Doesn't say, and the total years of his life. Then Arpachshad, his son, lived 35 years and begat Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he begat Shelah 403 years, and he begat sons and daughters. Why didn't you tell us the total? Well, because we know it. We just add it up. But why did we do it the first time? Uh, my friends, the explanation is because the Bible wants to educate us to be very focused on numbers. To be focused on numbers, you've got to be able to do basic, basic arithmetic. And to do basic arithmetic, you need to know the, the numbers, what you're supposed to do to them, add, subtract, multiply, divide, and you're supposed to work out the answer. But if you don't yet know the base system in which you're working, because as you know, even with a rudimentary knowledge of computers, you've heard of binary system. A binary system uses ones and zeros. Uh, what do you think a base four system uses? Well, it uses one, two, three, and a zero. So how do you express the number four in a base four system? Ten, one, zero, right? Um, it, yes, I mean, if, if you're into this, you are. If you're not, then I've just been talking Zulu, and uh, it doesn't matter in the slightest. The bottom line is that this uh, section, chapter 5, giving us two numbers, adding them, and giving us the answer 
is there in order to explain the process, the arithmetic process. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard how the whole base 10 system with a zero came from India. Some people say it came from the Arab world. Some people say it came from both, first from India, then to the Arab world. Uh, bottom line is that long before it was dated in India or the Arab world, it came from the oldest book of humanity, namely the Bible. That is where the base 10 system with its zeros comes from. And that is why later on in chapter 11 and elsewhere and throughout the Bible, uh, when genealogies are given, no, never again do we give the two numbers and the adding and the answer. Because from now onwards, having having uh, absorbed the lesson of chapter 5 in Genesis, we now get how arithmetic works, and we're supposed to get how arithmetic works. But um, somehow or another, there are a lot of people that still go and believe the story more than they believe the numbers. And uh, I, your rabbi, recommend strongly against that. I've often said that uh, the Tesla automobile is truly, it's a tour de force of technology. Um, it's it's rather amazing. That's very different from saying that Tesla stock's a good investment, which I don't believe it is. For one reason, um, there are a lot of other fancy cars that are now producing electric vehicles, such as Jaguar and BMW, uh, whose performance and startling virtuosity is every bit the equal of Tesla. Secondly, the um, uh, the subsidy which makes farmers in Kansas and uh, hard-working people around the country uh, subsidize the fancy purchases of Teslas by those who want to parade their virtue by driving an electric car. So that's fading out and going away. So, But above all, the, one of the biggest problems are the stories that come out of Tesla which distract one from the numbers. If you look at the numbers, you're not going to invest. But if you listen to the story, you probably will because you're letting yourself be led astray by your hearts and by your eyes. And nobody spins a better yarn than um, uh, the head of Tesla, a genius guy, Elon Musk. And here's something he said recently. This is beautiful. Basically, uh, the problem is that um, the delivery of vehicle, and again, they get paid when vehicles are delivered. So it's crucially important that they start generating some revenue. And uh, what happened is that they have literally, they spent billions of dollars trying to figure out how to make a huge number of Model 3 compact uh, Teslas. And now they're discovering that they can't sell them. The deliveries fell 31% in January, February, March of 2019, uh, down dramatically from the last quarter of 2018. And that slowdown imperils uh, Tesla's ability to uh, remain a, a functioning uh, car company. So on a call recently um, to Wall Street analysts, uh, Elon Musk, the chief executive of Tesla, said the following. He said, demand for the Model 3 is insanely high. The only inhibitor is affordability. It's got nothing to do with desire. And I read that and read it and reread it. And then I tried to get hold of a recording of the conversation because I couldn't believe it. But sure enough, Mr. Musk did say to analysts 
um, that the demand is insanely high and the only inhibitor is affordability, nothing to do with desire. And all the analysts on the call, oh, okay, fine. And nobody stopped him and said, Mr. Musk, what do you mean it's all about desire? Obviously, there isn't a person in the world who doesn't desire a Tesla for free. Obviously, affordability is the issue. And Elon Musk was telling the analysts, hey, the important thing is there's desirability. Everyone desires a Tesla. The issue is not affordability. No, the issue is affordability. Look at the numbers, please. Right? A a fall in delivery of 31% is huge. And look at the cost of the Tesla compared to the cost of other cars. You're looking at the affordability. That is the issue. Elon Musk claims that the important thing is desirability, and the desirability is still insanely high. No, that is really not how the world really works. So again, brilliant, brilliant guy, amazing, um, gigantic figure striding across the technology landscape of the 21st century. My goodness, PayPal was one of his brainchilds. Genius. But uh, Tesla as an investment, don't be led astray by heart, your heart and eyes. Don't listen to the story. Just look at the number. And when as part of the story, Elon Musk says, hey, demand is very high. Everybody desires a Tesla. Don't worry about the affordability issue. No, that's not true. Let me explain. Uh, let's imagine that um, uh, in your neighborhood, where, let's imagine there, uh, all right, let me, let me take an island in the state of Washington, in the middle of Lake Washington, a beautiful island, and um, there are, shall we say, um, 5,000 homes on the island. And there are 100 waterfront homes around the perimeter of the island. Right? There's probably more, but it doesn't matter. Now, who wouldn't desire a waterfront home, right? Well, everybody. I mean, everybody wants one. Why wouldn't you? It's beautiful. And so, not surprisingly, in the world in which we live, waterfront homes on this island cost a whole lot more than homes in the middle of the interior of the island that don't have a view and don't have waterfront, and you can't jump into the lake from your front lawn. But those that do, well, they... Uh, have a premium. Now, according to uh, Elon Musk, it's not a case of affordability, it's just a case of desire. But if that was the case, then we'd have an enormous problem deciding who gets to live in one of those waterfront homes, right? Who gets to do that? In other words, how should society allocate a rare and desirable resource like waterfront homes? And as far as I can tell, there are only five different ways of deciding which of us in our society uh, talk about the state of Washington, five million people approximately. Every one of them wants a waterfront home. There's only a limited supply of waterfront homes. How do we decide who gets them? Well, we could have a lottery. Now, don't laugh at that because uh, we have lotteries for all kinds of things in America today. Uh, they even do immigration lotteries, and they do lotteries to help the children, lotteries to uh, 
persuade silly people to buy tickets. It's just another way of, it's a stupid tax is what it really is. And, uh, but still, if we put everyone who wants a waterfront home's name in a hat and we pull out a number of pieces of paper corresponding to the number of homes available, we can even write the address of each home on one of the pieces of paper, and then people pull them out, and, uh, and that way we get to decide who lives in the waterfront homes. That is one of the five ways of doing it. I don't think it's a great way, but it is a way. The, other, the next way is by force. And don't laugh at this one either, because there are many parts of the world in which real estate and many other assets are indeed allocated by force. Uh, there are um, uh, warlords, gangsters in charge of entire districts, and indeed uh, all resources are allocated by the, on the basis of force. The trouble is that if you took your gang, call it your army if you're squeamish about being a gang leader, but you'd rather be a generalissimo, uh, take your gang and seize the house you like. The only problem is that you need to keep your little army gang fed and happy because you're going to need them when somebody else with his own army comes to try and take your house away. So that's the drawback of using force. It works, but it's not a great way. Third way is a bureaucratic panel. We get some government officials, we get some academic professors from the university, we get some bureaucrats, we get some elected officials, put them all on a big committee, and the committee then looks at applications and decides to allocate waterfront property in that way. Now, during the old Soviet Union, that's precisely how valuable and desired resources were allocated, so that works. It's not great, but it does work. That's the third way. The fourth way is to say, you know what, these waterfront homes are so terrific, it's not fair in a free and democratic society that only a few people, like, you know, a few hundred, should get to enjoy those. They should belong to everybody. So what we do is we make that entire row of houses on the waterfront, all the way around the island, we tear down the houses, turn them into a park, put up some community centers, and this now belongs to everybody. Well, it seems like a good solution, but the problem is that it only postpones the problem because now the next row of houses in not only have a waterfront view, but they've even got a park in front of them. And so we now have to decide how to allocate those houses. Those, that's four ways. The only other way I know of is through price. Yes, Mr. Musk, it's called affordability. And what we do is we allow everyone, the public, to decide how much of their selves, how much of their being, how much of the essence, their lifeblood, their money, are they willing to give in order to be able to have that resource. And many people will put up a lot and other people say, no, not worth it for me. I'd rather live somewhere more modest and use my money for something else. That's the great value of prices. And... It's so strange to hear somebody as prominent as the head of the Tesla company tell analysts, hey, we're doing fine. Everybody wants a Tesla. It's nothing to do with affordability. It's just desire, and the desire is strong. And what's even more startling is that not a single analyst took issue with him over that. But I, I'm pretty sure a whole lot of them made some notes on their papers and said to themselves, uh-uh, this is is not so good. But uh, yeah, I desire a Tesla, uh, not at the price they're selling, I, because I'm not willing to bid that much of my lifeblood for one of those. 
not willing to but uh desirability yeah i got desirability for it no question affordability the price structure is what retains a a, a system that enables human beings to live at peace with one another because each of my other ways lotteries i don't think force produces fighting a bureaucratic panel is horrible in terms of uh, producing unity. Um, turning it into a park is no answer, no answer at all, which, which only leaves price. And that ultimately is the way that people can best live in harmony and unity with one another, which after all is the idea. And living in harmony and unity means we need to connect with one another and to do that effectively, why, you need a copy of Connect for Success, Prosperity Power. And uh, it's a two-hour study program. You can get your copy downloaded right away now by going to rabbidaniellappin.com or to youneedarabbi.com. Either way, we'll do it. And uh, reading up, go to where you can read up on Prosperity Power, Connect for Success, uh, I think you will see that it is well worth the cost of entry. I don't think you will be sorry, and certainly those with whom you live, the people in your orbit for whom you care, uh, they will all benefit as well from your newfound knowledge of the underlying principles of connecting for success. And so I hope you have a wonderful week ahead, a week of good times in faith, in friendship, in family, and finance. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Till next week, God bless.